And while they're being dismissed, Jason, if you'll throw up that slide from Grace Alone where it talks about I stand in faith, I run, I'll end in faith. We're going to try to work out a little gremlin in the <coughs> microphone here. I, by the way, Heath, I've moved it up here, so there shouldn't be as much here. Um, grace Alone, it was the one where it said I stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I run the race by grace and grace alone. Look at this verse. By the way, where did she go? Sarah? 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 There you are. Nice. That's a, is that from 95, really? That song? I thought I read it was from 95. Never heard it. What a great song. And look at there. Everything. If you've uh, ever studied the book of Romans, there's a verse in there, the theme of Romans, where it says, the righteous shall live from faith to faith. And there is your answer. So I'll stand in faith. That is our salvation by grace and grace alone. Then we are called to action. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin. Romans 8.13 says, If by the Spirit, not in your own effort, but if by the Spirit you put to death, so it does take our responsibility, you shall live. And that's the idea of slaying your sin by grace and grace alone. And then I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. That's good. We could just, I could just preach on that today. In fact, today I will... No, I'm just kidding. Um, now we're moving into the sermon. Um, if you're just joining us, we started last week, and we'll go right through Easter, a series called uh, <coughs> The Week That Changed the World. And we're looking, every Sunday, we're looking at a day of that week, and we began with Sunday. We actually could have gone back to Saturday. I was looking, and somebody showed me in a, in a study Bible. It, they, their calendar has since started on Saturday, but we chose Sunday. And uh, last week, we looked at the triumphal entry. Uh, and we ended with worship the Lord. And uh, you should have uh, with you a handout that looks like this. Each week, I'm going to have one of those. Should the should it fit? So you can follow along on that so you don't have to be flip back and forth between the four gospels. And we ended last week with worship the Lord. That's what the that's what those who responded rightly to the coming king did. They worshiped the Lord and they laid palm branches down as a sign of victory. It's a done deal. Even before he went to the cross, there were those who believed this is the Messiah, he is the one. And so we ended with worship the Lord. This week we are looking at um the temple cleansing, there's a couple things that are going on there, but let me first pray, and then we'll get started. Father, um, um, thank you for bad grammar. Uh, Father, I thank you that you are in control. I thank you that your son died for my sin, and I thank you that you have not left yourself uh, without a witness, that when Jesus went to be with you, he sits at your right hand, you sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to live within me. And I thank you that you've done that for every single believer in this gym. I think you've done it for every single believer across this earth. I pray now you would comfort our hearts. Give me the proper words to speak and the right tone to speak them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those sermons that uh, if this were the horse, you can fall off on the horse on either side. You get pastors who use this and what Jesus does here in the temple cleansing and the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, they, they, their tone is um, more harsh than Jesus' tone. 
You get some on this side of the horse, they fall off and they go, surely that, that's a mistake in Jesus' life. And so obviously we're just going to brush over it. Uh, to stay on the horse, you gotta, you got to handle what Jesus did, but you have to deliver it in such a way that people are encouraged, though you may be convicted. Uh, and so today, um, if, you, if you joined us last week, we talked about the, the triumphal entry. And I want you to know that that's not just something that happened in history as if we're not a part of the story. I want you to see these verses in Revelation just to set the context that one day um, we're going to do the same thing they did. In Revelation 7, 9 through 12, it says this, After this, this is John, he looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That is, the Tower of Babel reversed. They were standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and look at this, with palm branches in their hands, we get to do the same thing. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. The people and the angels together worshiping God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might, a sevenfold praise, be to our God forever and ever, Amen. You could call it a triumphal church service. Amen? Amen. Well, today we are in church. I know some of you, I, I know my youngest was uh, kind of dreary this morning, uh, lethargic because it's daylight saving time and I thought man maybe he just needs a a shower to wake him up to pep him up have you ever thought about that have you ever thought about the beauty of the shower Um, after the daylight saving time sometimes you need a shower to wake you up and it got me thinking about the shower Um, did you know there's debate on the shower there is we live in a fallen world we're going to debate anything um you know, the, this line is yellow. Well, it's not really yellow. I mean, it's just the pigment of the light. I mean, we're going to debate about everything, and people are debating the shower. They are. I, serious, I found it on the Internet. It must be true, right? It's in the New York Times. It's called The Great Unwashed. Yeah, let me read it to you. Uh, this lady, she's public, so I'm just going to mention her name, Jennifer Palmer of Malibu, California cheerfully acknowledged recently that she doesn't shower or shampoo daily and doesn't use deodorant. Um, she's the chief executive of an organic skin care line, often travels because, to meet business contacts at a five-star luxury hotel where her line is sold. They might be surprised to read that Miss Palmer, a petite, put-together uh, brunette, showers no more than three times a week and less if she hasn't been working out vigorously. On the go, her underarm odor is wiped away with a slice of lemon. Uh, Another lady, Catherine Ashburn, wrote The Dirt Unclean, an unsanitized history. She said, we've never needed to wash less, and we've never done it more. And this whole article, you can read it on your own, uh, is about showering less. You can. You can. Science proves it. Um, I read another article because I wasn't convinced that you do need to take showers. But here's the debate. It's not just to shower or not to shower, but now it's hot or cold shower. Uh, There's something known as the James Bond shower. And uh, apparently, I didn't get this from ever watching one of those movies, but in the books, he would take a hot shower, but then to wake his body up, 
um, he would take a cold end to a shower, and apparently this is something that goes back forever, because even the Japanese who practice Shinto from both ancient and modern times do this to cleanse the spirit. Uh, our, fins, our friends in Finland, uh, they will go into a hot sauna and then go, and you've seen them in the polar bear club, they'll jump in cold water because there's something good about hot and cold mixed together. Here's benefits of the cold water shower. It improves circulation. It relieves depression. Keeps skin and hair healthy. But see, I quoted this to my wife, and she just read the other day, see, there's science to prove everything. But you, you read, no, you should do warm, right? So, so we're in this big debacle in our house. What do we do? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's stre- it, it is true. It does strengthen your immunity. It increases your testosterone, gentlemen. Take a cold shower before you go lift. I mean, that's, that's what I'm doing. Uh, it, it does other things. I'll just leave it at that. It increases energy and well-being. So to shower or not to shower or to shower hot or cold... Just don't do this. This is my final article that I read on this. Don't be that team. This is on missions. This is missions work. Don't be that team that refuses to shower. Seriously. They were talking about this team who went on a short-term mission to Tanzania, and they were talking about the silly things that they did, i.e., don't do this on your mission trip. Be sensitive to the culture, i.e., if they want you to stay in their homes, you stay in their homes. You don't say, no, we have to stay at the church. No, that's offensive. But worse, the worst part is their lack of showering. I'm just going to read it because it's so absurd. For some absurd reason, these fully grown adults decided that it would be fun to have a no-showering contest during their mission trip. Come on! They bet each other on how many days they could go without showering. Of course, there was perfectly good shower available to them, and there was an abundance of water. But apparently their malaria medication affected their good judgment for something like that. Because these otherwise normal people decided that would be funny. Not only did they refuse to take showers, but they constantly discussed it, even around local people who, at best, were confused by why Americans who would come to the country and not shower and, at worst, terribly offended. Take a shower, people. Here's the idea. Why is he talking about a shower? Because I want you to see physical showers, they're debated and they are good, whether hot or cold. But more than that, we need to understand a spiritual cleansing. Today I'm going to be talking on something that just, like I said earlier, it either gets ripped into and it's delivered with, with no grace or it just gets blown off and is delivered with no grace. It's the idea of repentance and holiness. It's the idea that sometimes, I will even say all the time, I will even say every day, hour by hour, we need a spiritual cleansing through repentance. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus and holiness. The preview for this is, You're going to see Jesus on the way back from Bethany curse the fig tree. And then you're going to see him walk into the temple. And he's going to literally cleanse the temple. And I hope to make a connection to us. Last week we left off in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. And it says, He entered in Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so there's Jesus. He comes in. He, he recognizes it's not yet time. He goes home. He gets a good night's rest. 
probably wasn't daylight saving time. And so we begin, and today I'm going to use Mark. If you have your sheet, I'm going to jump around, but I'm going to use Mark as my main text. Mark 11, starting in verse 12. This is the cursing of the tree. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now, as disciples heard it, what they did with it, we don't know. It doesn't say. Perhaps they looked at each other and just kind of shrugged their shoulders. Uh, to let you know, and we'll find out next week, what they found out the next day is Jesus was going to use that as an illustration. Needless to say, this is an interesting couple of verses. Many who question the Gospels say that this is out of character of Jesus, cursing a poor tree. I mean, is this spurious and unlike our Lord? Is this petulant and childlike, as some have suggested? These objections, objections, in my opinion, stem from a bitter root that always asks the question, if God is so good, why curse anyone to hell? More on that in a bit. This fault-finding of Jesus shows a deeper issue. For it shows that some worship the creation and not the Creator. The tree has no soul, so don't get shaken up. In fact, if they knew the one who speaks these words, they would recognize that He can do with His creation whatever He wants to do. But what He's doing is He's using this creation as an illustration. He is not being spurious. He's being very, very serious. He's using a soulless tree to help souls in trouble. And he's done it before. If you were reading through the book of Mark in chapter 5, he sent some pigs into the abyss. You remember that story? A whole herd of swine he sacrificed into the abyss. I mean, why not make sausage, right? Have you ever had any demon-possessed sausage? It's not good. One pastor said this, Withered by the word, the critics cry out. But Jesus' cursing of the tree serves a purpose. It was a visual parable to the nation of Israel. And this is one thing I, w- I want to encourage you. This is a side note. This is not the main point of my sermon, but it is a good one. When you run across verses like this or phrases like this, for it was not the season for figs, and you have a question about it, you don't just blow it off. This is why we need commentaries, and we have more written commentaries, more online free commentaries out there, and you need to do a little research, and that's what I did, because I said to myself, well, wait a second. I know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know He doesn't just do things willy-nilly, so there's got to be a purpose. And a little digging fascinated me. Why would He say this was the season of no figs? If you want, you can turn to Jeremiah 8:13, or you can see it up on the board. One commentary said, when the figs were growing, there were actually two types of fruit. There was the figs that came out prior to the leaves, that they were distasteful, and then there were the figs that came out after the leaves. Notice what it says. It says, He went to see if he could find anything on it. Jesus was looking for any signs of life. So he should have found figs that precede the foliage. He found nothing. And when he found nothing but the leaves, 
For it's not the seasons of figs. One commentary said this. What he's doing is he's making a connection to the Old Testament. So the Jewish people hearing this would say, whoa. Because in Jeremiah 8.13, says the Lord, this is what God says. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. And he's saying, This tree that was often associated with Israel was supposed to be giving its fruit, even the first fruits, and it had no fruit. And an even more convicting passage is Micah 7. This is what opened my eyes to the beauty of the Scripture. Do I question Jesus? No. Do I have further understanding? Look at Micah 7, 1 through 3. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat. Now watch this next phrase. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. He just wanted to see something from this tree and saw nothing. And it's a visual parable. And it goes on to say, The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Not only do they do evil, they're good at it. And the prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. And so here we see the foliage and no fruit, not even the tasteless fruit that precedes it. Looks can be deceiving. And what Jesus is doing, he's giving the disciples a picture. This is the nation of Israel in leaf, but their leaves cover a fruitless relationship with God. This cursing of the fig tree sets up the cleansing of the temple because what you're going to go in and see is a people using God for their own gain and not as God has designed it. And so he goes from cursing and he goes into cleansing. And you've heard the phrase, He came in, this coach came in, and he cleaned house. Or this CEO came in, and he cleaned house. The idea behind that is to be in the process of either effortlessly winning, or it means to eliminate or discard what is undesirable. Well, Jesus goes in, and it wouldn't be without without effort. And he goes in, and he's not there to pulverize the opposition. He will walk into the temple to sacrifice for them. And as he enters into this temple, now to give you a picture of this, if you were to see Sports Authority Field, the temple is three times as big as that. The whole temple mount. If you were to see the ballpark in Arlington, which looks like a temple, by the way, if you've ever been there, I've been there, it's fun. You walk up to it, you literally think, this is, is kind of weird because there's walls on all sides and it's very majestic. Twice as big as that. And you see this temple and you see this picture here just in a distance of how grand it is and how how unfortunate is the Dome of the Rock there. It's huge. There, Josephus, a historian at that time, said when they would have the Passover week, 255,000 lambs were here. And what they were doing is in the temple in the in the courtyard of the gentiles they would have all this trade going on because your money wasn't good enough for god you had to trade it out and they were using that to make money and they were selling them 
these unrighteous lambs and pigeons. It looked like the National Western Stock Show and the New York Stock Exchange all together, all this commotion, and Jesus walks in, and this is what he does. When they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He came in, and he saw this desecration. And he upsets the pigeon cart. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now that's the phrase, that verse is the one that gets me. So what's he do? All right, uh, Peter, I want you to stand here. John, you stand there. And if anybody starts walking through, you have my authority. What did that look like? I don't know. It's just divine speculation. Matthew says he entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Even the the smallest of the sacrifices, people were trying to manipulate the foreigners who had come. And Luke says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. He was overturning tables. He was going to expose their hypocrisy. He was going to upset the norm. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. It was righteous anger in action. This often doesn't get communicated in the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. What he's doing here when he overturns these tables. And, and I, don't, I don't think you can overturn tables gently, honestly. I don't think it's just a, it's just, you know, he's just walking in and he's like, oh, geez, things are going on here that shouldn't be going on. Why are they turning over the tables, right? That's not what he's doing. I think he's doing it with some zeal. I won't show you what I think he was doing, but I don't think it was gentle. He's showing the absurdity of how the one place on earth that was to be God's holy place had turned into the centerpiece of the health and wealth movement long before the health and wealth movement. Let's see how much money we can make off God. And along the, when he's doing that, he established that nobody else could come and go in the temple and bring things in to sell. It says he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He said to them, uh, it is, You have made it a den, den of robbers. And notice that phrase, a house of prayer for all nations. The way that the commentaries describe it, there's the court of the Gentiles, and then there's the Holy of Holies. And so it's in this court of the Gentiles that the Jews had set up this false religion to make money off God, to use God for their own gain, and he's overturning those tables. He said, this is a house of prayer. This is not a house of business. Matthew goes on and says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. He was given vision to the blind. You're supposed to see that and go, they don't see it, but the blind see. And he was given action to the lame. He's, he was showing, I can take this perversion and restore it the way it should be. And he takes this idea of, you have called my uh, temple, this should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Again, he's connecting it to the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 56, 6-8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Foreigners, even in the Old Testament, foreigners could come to God. It was not a nationalistic uh, religion. All could come to God. 
everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does and Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house, my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted by my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God, from the beginning of time to the end of time, has always been a missionary God. He sent forth his son. He sends us out. He was The nation was supposed to be a place to gather, to go out, so people would come in. The Lord God who gathers outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So Jesus is going in to purge the temple, not of foreigners, but for them. He's restoring the temple to the way it should have done, been. And you've heard it said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, I found this week in the library, there's a savvy publisher came out with, if it ain't broke, break it, and other unconventional wisdom for changing the business world. And certainly what Jesus did was unconventional. And he certainly he was breaking something that needed to be fixed. And so Jesus comes in on the way he curses a tree, he cleanses the temple, and now you see the most important part. How are the people going to react? Verse 18 of Mark 11. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. What was the heart motive? For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were seeking to destroy him. Matthew says, but when the chief priest and scribes saw, notice this, the wonderful things that he did. He was healing the blind. He was healing the lame. He was teaching. And the children were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. They were in, and these, the, the chief priests and scribes were indignant. They were exceedingly angry. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? As if to question Jesus, do you realize what these people are doing? I mean, they're praising you as if you're the Messiah, you're the king. And Jesus said to them, yes, love is answered, yes. And again, he appeals to them. He's driven by the word. Last week we saw he was driven by the word. He's going to come in on a donkey just like Zacharias had. And here he's appealed to Jeremiah. He's appealed to Micah. He's appealed to Isaiah. These are your prophets. These are your people calling you back to the law, calling you back to what it's always been. And he says, do you see them? And here's what he says. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of babes and infants, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And he quotes Psalm 8. Now, if you were to read Psalm 8 in our Bible, this is what it might look like. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. Oh, there's a discrepancy in the Bible because because of your foes and still the enemy and the avenger. One says prepared for praise. The other says established strength. Which is it? See, there's a discrepancy. We should just fold this thing, go home, have a cocktail, and call it quits, right? Because there's obviously a discrepancy. Read a little bit. Do a little research, you see. L-I-B. L-I-B. That's country for, wow. L-I-B. This is the Greek. By that time, not only had the Jews forgotten their Uh, past in the Bible, they had turned to the LXX. So what does Jesus do? He uses their own scriptures against them. And so what I just showed you is in the Hebrew, but what he quotes in Matthew is the Greek. Jesus knew Hebrew and Greek. That's good. And so there's no discrepancy in our text. 
Jesus knows exactly what to say when. And look at this. In 47, and he was teaching daily in the, this is Luke 19, he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chiefs, priests, and scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. How can we do something to him now? Everybody is flocking to him. They were driven by fear, and they were driven by anger. Why? I think it's the fear manifested itself in anger because Jesus was upsetting their system. They had so worked it out that they knew what God uh, wanted. They knew what would please Him. How did they get here? They got here the same way everybody gets to their false positions on Christianity and at that time Judaism. They moved away from the Word. It started in the garden. Adam and Eve didn't listen to God's Word. It was not written at the time, but it was spoken. You may eat freely of every tree in this garden, except this one. The devil comes in, plants seeds of doubt, and they move away from God's Word. The nation of Israel, every time, trust me, you could do it yourself. Go back and read the Bible. Every single time somebody gets in trouble, they're moving away from God's Word. When Jacob gets in trouble, he's moved away from God's Word. When Gideon gets in trouble, he moves away from God's Word. When the nation gets away, they move away from God's Word, so much so that Amos says there's a famine in the land. Not a famine of food, but a famine of the Word. And the Pharisees and the scribe and the principal men, what they had done is they had moved away from the Word. And they had established these laws, and Jesus said, no, we're not going to have it up with your laws, we're doing it God's way. And he does that, and you think, here we go. And in verse 19 of Mark 11, it says, And when evening came, they went out of the city. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there, says Matthew. Just another day at the office. <laughs> cleanses, he curses a fig tree, he cleanses the temple. It was a Monday, it was a just another manic Monday. Was the, that was good. Some of you got the Bengals reference. But what he's doing, we're following the flow. Last week he enters into Jerusalem. It's the triumphal entry. Worship the king because he is victorious. And here he's turning over the things that need to be turned over. He's turning upside down the things that need to be turned upside down because you will see before we can have teaching and fellowship, we've got to expose the sin. He was literally upsetting the pigeon cart. He was driven by the word. His disruption of religion was not without purpose. From the cursing of the fig tree to the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was connecting himself to the Old Testament. He is showing that he himself is both judge and advocate. He is the one who who it says in the Scriptures, this time I did not come to judge, but to give my life. But He's coming back to judge. He is also the advocate. First John says He is the advocate for you. And biblical Christianity says we have to hold both views. He is the judge. He is the lawgiver and the judge. And He's the one who intercedes for us. To embrace anything less than this is a false gospel. 
we leave him as just and unloving or he's loving but not just. And too many people, too many pastors, too many churches fall off the horse on either side of this. And you think to yourself, okay, well, that was them. How do I apply this to myself? Well, we're not Israel, but we're still God's people. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been saved from the punishment of sin. Amen? And you've been unchained from the power of sin. Amen? But we still can be deceived by the presence of sin. And we're not above using God for gain. If not overtly, it happens subtly. We may not be as heinous as the health and wealth movement, but we can still treat God as if, as if our relationship with Him was like a vending machine. God, I need X. Quarter of the Bible reading, quarter of prayer, pull the slot machine, nothing happens. God, well, wait a second. Your word calls me to read the Bible and your word calls me to pray. I did that. You owe me. That's how we can treat God. That's how I can treat God. And it's wrong. And we need to repent. Because before we can maximize our worship of God and our fellowship with one another, sin must be exposed. That's what Jesus is doing with the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Hearts must repent. That's what Jesus is calling them and us to do. But that's not today's approach. I mean, sin and repentance are, are really not talked about. Sin is overlooked. Repentance is ignored. That is, one is swept under the rug. And one, if we think through the idea of what does it mean to ignore, it literally means to treat as if we don't know what it means. Many of us think that repentance is a one-time deal. Yeah, yeah, I repented back in 96, 97. That's when I repented, as if it was a past thing that I never go back to. And to speak of it again, Judd, that's, you're kind of getting in my, my space here. I mean, that's a negative. Repentance is negative. No, it's not. No, it's not. Listen, I, I don't think it's up there, but listen to 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. You know what repentance is? Repentance is a gift. It's a gift. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps, that's a key phrase, it's in the ESV, it's in the NIV, it's in the NAS. The NAS, NAS says, if perhaps. It's there in all the versions, which means they're all translating it correctly. God may perhaps, may perhaps, grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's not a negative. The fact that He granted it to me in 1996, 6, 1997, that is a gift. The fact that He grants it to me today is a gift. It's a gift. Another verse on this is repent, therefore, and turn back. This is in Acts. I won't go into it much now because we're getting ready to preach on it. But it says repent that times of refreshing may come. When we repent, we are refreshed like a shower. 
And it brings life. Acts 11 says, When they heard this, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, and also God has granted, it's a gift, repentance that leads to life. You ever been sleepy? You ever felt sick? And you go take a shower, you get done, and there's this life back in your body. That is what repentance does for your soul. And so what do we do with this? I mean, the Easter season is upon us. Fat Tuesday is over. Ash Wednesday is in the record books. What do we do? I mean, we're not Catholic. We're, how do we appreciate this season? Well, my call to us today is to put sin to death, not just for 50 days, but for the rest of our life. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, I, I want to just read you something because it's one of the classic verses that we all use. And I want you to see it in context because I want you to see that repentance really does bring life. And I want you to see um, the seriousness of denying God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? And we stop there. We shouldn't stop there. Christian church, beloved saints of Eagle Bible, we shouldn't stop there. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This first time He did not come to judge, He came to save. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Amen? But whoever does not believe is condemned already. He's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. This is what was going on in the temple. They were darkened. He heals a blind man to show him. He sees really because you are blind to the truth. And in John 5, 26 and 27, does Jesus have the right to do this? For as the Father has in life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's the serious call to our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers who don't know the Lord Jesus. Yes, God so loved the world. He, he is a God of love. And He gave His only begotten Son. But unless you turn from your sin, you will stand condemned. We've got to preach the whole gospel. Yes, it's uncomfortable. I did it just the other day. I did it with a gentleman from another false religion. He didn't understand my words because he met with one of another person in our church and he said, your pastor condemned me to hell. I didn't condemn him to hell. I did not condemn him to hell. I just said, we believe in a different Jesus. And if you go on and believing in your version of that Jesus whom you don't think is God, then he didn't have the ability to die for your sins because he's not God. And if he wasn't God, he couldn't have risen from the dead. And so that Jesus you believe in is no Jesus at all. And if you believe in him, you will go to hell. I didn't condemn him to hell. I'm merely saying what the Bible says. I didn't make a friend. I was nice when I did it. In fact, he crowded me in my corner in my office at Yeti. It was my office. Crowded me. But I was kind. But one thing I do know for certain, I will stand before God and I presented to him the truth. I shared with him the gospel. 
And what I'll keep doing is I know him by name and I'll keep praying. Keep a, keep a list. I mean, way back when Elder DeBell and Elder Ford came to my came to my house in Denton. And I said, you guys, you're not sharing with me the good news. You're sharing with me the false gospel. And Lord willing, I don't know, maybe I'll see him in heaven someday. And there'll be like real elders of churches, but not many elders of a false religion. That is for those who don't believe. And for those of us who do believe, let me encourage you with this. Believer, you are not cursed. Amen? But we need to be clean. And just so you get a good picture of how clean we need to be, One end, there it is. One end of the gospel to another. Not the gospel, one end of the New Testament to another. The call to be clean. You say, oh, the whole shower illustration. It's making sense now. We'll start with Luke 5, 13. Number one, Jesus makes us clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, he had said, Jesus, if you will, you can heal me. He says, I will. And when he, then he says, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. We had leprosy of the soul. We are clean. Jesus goes on to say in John 13, 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. He's talking about Judas. Do you see that? I call this the mud room of the Christian life, right? You've already bathed. All you need to do is clean your feet. That's why we have mud rooms. I didn't know about a mud room until I moved to Colorado, because there's mud in Colorado, and you don't want to going through the whole house. And I sometimes forget that because I wasn't raised with a mudroom. But it's a great idea. You don't have to have a full bath. Just get your shoes off. Clean your feet. He says in John 15, 3, and here's a connection to being clean and being connected to not a cursed fig tree, but the true vine. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit, by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We stand in faith by grace and grace alone. We run the race by grace and grace alone. We slaughter our sin by grace and grace alone. And we'll make it to the end by grace and grace alone. How do you be clean? Repent and stay close to Jesus. That is a tree that bears fruit. In 1 Corinthians 6, Jesus connects this. So Jesus makes us clean. We're clean, but we need to bathe. Here it connects that we're talking about temples here. Well, how does that temple relate to me? Flee from sexual immorality and every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why is that such a problem? Why do we get up in arms about gay marriage and things like this? Because it's very, very serious. Why, Judd? Why is it so serious? 19 is a great verse to memorize. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Now, I am not saying... See, that says this, ergo, therefore, you need to be on an exercise regimen. That's not what it's saying. 
It's saying the body that the Lord has given you is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, wow. You mean to say that God's presence among his people lives within me? Yes. Does that mean I have to work out three times a day? No. It means flee sin. Because this is residence for the divine. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the immediate application is don't be connected with sexual immorality. An extended one is all sin disrupts the temple of the Holy Spirit. An extended one, sure, take care of your body. Jesus makes us clean. We only need to bathe. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Men, how about this one? Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrifice. We're all there. We take a bullet for our wives. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. We stop short, gentlemen. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We understand sacrifice. Men, do we perform this role with our wives? How's she doing spiritually? Are you leading her spiritually? Are you guiding her? Are you making sure that she is reading the word, either with you or by herself? Because there is no higher call for a man, not your job, not your children. One day... That's why we spent seven weeks on it. That woman will be before Jesus. Yes, she has personal responsibility for her life. But when I made a covenant in front of God and my family and friends, I said, I'm going to present her spotless and blameless. Do you do that? See, we get that one part. Oh, yeah, I've got to sacrifice for my wife. Are we working that she, that her sanctification is the most important thing in our life? Nothing else matters in my life. Is my wife growing closer to Jesus? If she is, I'm doing my job. That doesn't mean fail on everything else. That means that is the most, that is the magnitude of marriage. How about 2 Timothy 2.21? Now in a great house there are many vessels, there are not only vessels of gold, or civil, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some from dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses, there's that word again, himself of what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You want to be used of the Lord? We cleanse ourselves we through repentance. Hebrews 10.12 says this, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. And here's the comfort with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can approach God with a clean conscience. Does that mean we aren't to do anything? I mean, all we do is just kind of, Lord, forgive me, and then that's it? No. Oh, no. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, 2 Peter 1. This, to me, ties together the Word, It ties together dependence on God's grace and it ties together my responsibility. 
His divine power has granted to us, I love this, my version says, you can read it up there, His, ver, his divine power has granted to us 32% of things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us half of that which pertains to life and You know, it gives me half and then I've got to go search for the other half. His power has granted to us most everything except we still need psychology and we still need to do these other things and we still need this and we still need that. No. His divine power, power of the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1 would go on to say, men moved by the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, the Word, so that through them, those promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. You have everything you need in here to live a holy and righteous and a clean and productive and fruitful life. You do not need to seek anything outside of here. To say that, what you're saying, in essence, yeah, all, all truth is, God, is God's truth. I mean, can't, aren't, isn't there some truth in other things? Yes. But to say that you need that in addition to this, is you're saying, this is not sufficient. Oh yeah, that's good just to tell me the stories of the faith, and that's good to kind of give me the Romans road to get to salvation, but that's really not going to help me in my marriage. Oh, you bet it will. Oh, that, that really, there's not a whole lot. I mean, it just says, train your children up in the Lord. That's really not going to help me train my children. Have you read Proverbs? Oh, but, but, but I'm having uh, marital difficulties, and that, uh, I mean, I need to go see a, a secular counselor because they, they can understand my behavior problems. What do, you, what do you mean? Paul, Paul says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to, by the renewing of your mind. There's behavior modification right there. I mean, I didn't need young. And uh, who was the other guy? Behavior mod. You don't know? Off the top of your head? He's Rogers. What is it? Rogers? Rogers? I don't need him. I need Paul. Everything. Yeah, yeah, but 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 in but how do I how how do I educate my kids? It's right there. How, how, I don't. But this doesn't tell me how I should work at the office or no. It it tells you. How, how do I how do I eat? It surely doesn't say this is how you eat. Oh, actually, it does. Whatever you do, whether you eat and or drink. Yes. So you mean to tell me orange juice can be consumed to the glory of God. It's in there. So what do I do with that? Well, Paul, Peter doesn't leave you hanging for this very reason. Because you have this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You believe, but you need to have character. And then with your character, you need to know. Well, I'm a faith guy, not a knowledge guy. No, you're a, you need to be a knowledge guy as well. And knowledge with self-control. So you don't need to just gain this knowledge and go out and and wax eloquent, not knowing what you're doing, but with self-control and with steadfastness, not only do you need to know and be in control, but it needs to happen over long periods of time. And with steadfastness, godliness, and with godliness, brotherly affection, with brotherly affection, love. Now here's the key 
of all that. So you get all these actions in 5 through 7, but watch these. For if these are qualities are yours and increasing, I often ask my wife, and I should do it more often, if you knew I wouldn't get sinfully upset, where do you see areas I can grow? Because in 14 years, she's the best testimony. She can say, I saw you in 1998. So it's 15 years if you include the year of dating. And I see you now. And I see growth. I hope it's 2014. I hope in 2028, 2030. That's a long time. Wow. I hope she can say, wow. For as long as I've known you, you've progressed. Sometimes not as much as others. You see, yours and increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Now here's the key. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You haven't taken a shower. You need to take a shower. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things... If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, what is this way? This way is the Christian way through the word, by the power of the spirit and prayer and obedience. It's a dependent responsibility. On this end, you get the extreme hard legalism. Follow rules and that's what God wants. You get president business over there if you've seen the Lego movie. The rules are here. You must build your Legos this way. Over here, Extreme ends, you get easy believism. Oh, you don't have to do anything. You just believe and that's it. You know, they abuse the thief on the cross story. The biblical middle is dependent responsibility. If by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of my flesh, I shall live. It's by the Spirit, His sovereignty, I put it to death, my, my responsibility. And that involves 1 John 1, 8 and 9, confession. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And there it is, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I won't go into detail for sake of time, but you can read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the consistent theme. The consistent theme is repent. Repent. You do this well, but I have this against you. Repent. Only one church is not called to repent. And so what do we do? We repent and be clean. We repent and be clean. And here's, here's the way I think you do this according to Scripture. It should be this next two slides there, Jason. Repent and be clean. The, the application for this is, number one, we, we turn from sin. We trust in God. That is what repent means. I'm going down this road. I'm going to drink myself silly. I'm going to chase women. I'm going to do this. No, I'm not. Power of the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin, regenerates me, and I'm going to turn. But I don't just stand there. I move forward, trusting in God, resting in Christ's work. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you again. And I'm going to go. And I'm going to turn from my sin constantly. And I'm going to trust in you daily. 
and I'm going to rest in Christ's finished work, and I'm going to resolve to put to death my sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the Christian life. And 1 John goes on to say, His commandments aren't burdensome. They aren't. It's believing them. It's believing them. If I do this right now, God will be most honored. It's believing that versus I got to get my way and got to say something. Just share with you what's going on in our family. Right now we're working through that whole patience and everybody's trying to talk to everybody at the same time. At the same time. Mommy, 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 love. Mommy, mommy, mom, love. We're all talking. She's like, no, I can't. And I did it this morning. She was talking to Luke and I said, love, because I'm the boss. I'm the head of the family, right? Uh, Drop everything, listen to me. That's sinful. (laughs) So we're all, we're all, and I sat them down yesterday. I said, we, we, all of us, we got to be patient. If you hear someone talking to someone else, patiently wait. It is not about getting your way right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. So that's how you obey. It's not how you get your way. Patience. I'm not going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. God, help me. Holy Spirit, work in my life to give me patience so that when I enter in a situation, I observe it, see there's a conversation going on, and wait. That's what we're doing. That's what we're working through. So it's not just the biggies in life. It's those little things. Right? You don't just wait until you've been on a camping trip for a week to take a shower. You shower daily, hot or cold. (laughs) You repent of your sin. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for a good word from your scriptures. Jesus, the judge of all life, even trees, comes to expose the hypocrisy of our lives so that we may have true life so that we would maximize our joy in bringing you glory in all that we do. Help us to turn from our sin, trust in you, help us to repent. I pray that we would do it daily, hourly, as much as need be. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.